Welcome to the Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpin' presented its first-ever Election Day special, chatted with a Colombian novelist, and discussed bricks and Chicago. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for November 9th, 2018. Mario Smith led Lumpin's first-ever Election Day special with six hours of programming. Joined by Michaela Blaze, John Daly, Quentin Scott, Joe Klonsky, and many more, Lumpin Radio discussed what the midterm elections will mean for our city. And now, back to our hosts. This is Election Night on WLPN 105.5 FM, Lumpin Radio. Welcome back, WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio News, November Decision 2018, uh, continuing election night coverage. Let's run down the news of the night for you before we uh, close it out. J.B. Pritzker is your new governor. Bruce Rauner has been defeated. AP has also called contests for Sean Caston over Representative Peter Roskam in the 6th Congressional District, and Hultgren has just conceded to uh, Laura Underwood in the 14th District. That's a, that's a big pickup. Democrats will take control of the House. Also in here in Illinois, Susan Mendoza declares victory over Darlene Sanger. Kwame Rule has uh, beaten Erica Harold. That's a pretty easy win for him. Dan Lipinski beat the Holocaust denier uh, Arthur Jones. Uh, you may remember that Mr. Jones managed to run because the Republicans didn't put up any, and he <laughs> snuck his way onto the ballot. Uh, Democrats are now forecast to pick up between 33 and 35 seats. Nancy Pelosi is actually speaking. She will be the new Speaker of the House. She's appearing, I believe, with uh, Diamond Joe Biden out there. Uh, other key pickups, Kansas was flipped to a Democratic uh, governor. Michigan has been flipped to a Democratic governor. In Iowa, there's a possibility that that could be flipped as well. However, Mike DeWine has won the Ohio governor's race. Uh, Ron DeSantis has won in Florida. And, of course, Stacey Abrams is losing badly in Georgia. It looks like some of the more progressive candidates are going down uh, in flames tonight. Donald Trump has just announced he will not speak. He has tweeted out that it was a great night. Thank you. Uh, Basically, what the map is looking like right now, and I I think we're going to probably discuss this in a second, but the United States map is now looking very coastal. It's blue on the coast, and now there's a little blue ridge going right across broken up by North Dakota, but then back into Montana and Washington. It is basically looking like, if you can think of what a staple looks like, a giant staple sitting on the United States. (laughs) The coasts and the top of the country are blue, and the rest of the country is very, very red. Again, the Republicans will control the Senate. They've picked up at least three seats that may be cut, depending on what happens uh, in Arizona. But uh, the Democrats have picked up 35 seats. They will take control of the House uh, in January. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, let's start nationally and end up locally. Nationally, the the war. The, well, see, what does CNN call it? Uh, the battle for America's soul or something. Absolutely. <laughs> Very dramatic. <laughs> it was really Still ridiculous. Still cage match tonight. Oh, God. <laughs> cage match for America. Ten-minute time limit. No holds barred. Cage match with chairs, ladders, and guns, America. Um, the... Uh, the idea that the Democrats and the Republicans and their ongoing battle for supremacy of nothing um, have managed to have a little bit of a chasm tonight. The The Republican Party controls the Senate, but the Democratic Party controls the House. Uh, Donald Trump does not have the majority majority. He has still a strong voice. Purse strings House, Policy Senate. Um, we, we went over what that means in terms of Donald Trump being able to, to legislate and govern. Um, and I, I'm also looking back at that and, and thinking about the people who voted today, how they feel about what they saw. Is this an encouraging thing? Is it a discouraging thing for voters? Are they like, man, I knew it. I knew, you know, even though they didn't vote in any other election outside of the ones in Illinois, if you're from Illinois, uh, just the, the, the general malaise and apathy of voters that seems to not really exist like that, but things like this can't turn people back into themselves about voting um and on that note with the national elections it's it's a whole new face now of of what people even if they didn't win tonight the progressives who ran represent a different kind of america it's young and not not super young not super old kind of mid-range um very progressive socialist um well some of the some of those guys didn't win 
Right, right. I'm, I'm, but it, it but there's a lot matter. to unpack. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, and I think that you know one of the things that you touched on earlier, Mario. This was a huge turnout election. Fifty yeah. percent of the city voted, which is phenomenal. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's an unbelievable thing. Millennials voted. Right. We had the highest early voter turnout ever at close to forty million, according to the projections that I'm seeing right now. Right. Yes. Candidates in Florida, Georgia, and Maryland who were on the left side of the party appear to have lost tonight. You're not, you, we're not going to count Stacey Abrams out until that's that's done. But it appears that in Florida, uh, Maryland, and and Georgia, where further left candidates were elected, they didn't win. But to your guys' point, now we have a more diverse crop of faces. That's right. We do. We have right. uh, Native Americans. We have uh, female Muslims, two of them. Uh, we now have more women. This was a very women-heavy election, and uh, by and large, they won, mm-hmm. uh, including right next door in Michigan, uh, where you know uh, Gretchen Whitmer is going to be the new governor yep. over there. Uh, I think that there's a lot of things to unpack, and I think just going back to what John Daly said at the very start of the program— what is going to be the test now is whether Democrats overreach or whether they do things, as you put it, Alan, whether they do the sensible things in terms of policy and force uh, Donald Trump, who's not been shown a good grasp of policy, force him to say no. And I think if you can do that on things like infrastructure and health care and education, and you can avoid some of the third rails. I mean, we've got a president that wants to drag us into the gutter on oh immigration. And and uh, crime and 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 racism. If you can avoid, you know, getting suckered into that, and you can say no, actually, we got to fix the roads, as Gretchen Whitmer did when she won in Michigan. She said, "I've got to yeah. fix." The, that was her campaign slogan: "Fix the damn roads." This is sensible stuff. But now we've got some diverse faces that maybe actually will say that to people. Maybe we should say, "Hey, you know, it's worth fixing the roads in Chicago because we all use them." Right. <laughs> and you know, I think another um, a, a, a sort of um, angle towards what you're you're saying that that we haven't really discussed, but that has been tacit, is the the presidency is a presidency of temperament on a level that hasn't happened in a very long time. Probably in the 20th century, it was not quite that. To have one of the bodies, the governing bodies, not be on your side anymore could actually have a profound impact on somebody who just wants his way and has tantrums when he doesn't get them. So if, as you're describing, we have a very reasonable, very kind of uh, practical House of Representatives saying, this is how we actually fix the country in the places it's physically, literally broken and so forth, and you have a president who's just having tantrums because he's not getting some other weird you know whatever he's looking for uh thing you it could it could be beneficial in terms of moving kind of waking up some of the people who are that big middle that aren't necessarily one extreme or the other with the election done the the question's gonna be so what right Mm -hmm. and ultimately the so what question is we've been told that this is the most important election of our lifetime most important midterms that we can do you gotta function as a check of what kind of country we're gonna have we're gonna lean into bigotry and hatred or not fine the so what factor is still here now with all right you got this giant turnout and democrats have control of the house are the democrats going to put themselves in a position to be steadfast in their values, steadfast in, in uh, the communities and the people that they represent and who they represent and how their representatives got to this place. Donald Trump did something amazing. If you think about this night, usually we expect the in party to, to lose seats in the midterm. That's, that's pl- political science 101. It is his ability to be so divisive and unpopular <laughs> that we haven't <laughs> talked about this economy, though, on the ground in the communities we exist in in Chicago. We know that there are still big, big issues. But you look at an unemployment rate as low as it is and growth as it is, that should be something that should be heralded and supported. That became secondary to how much fear... Could, I, could the president wrangle up around the caravan and crime and uh, Andrew Gillum's a thief down in right. like That is the conversation. So you have, the, you have this, this mini wave, not necessarily a tidal wave. <clears throat> Democrats can't start to become fickle mm. on this because it's going to cost them down the line 
you need to have a party that's clear about what they are or aren't going to negotiate. That wall can't come up as part of the negotiations. Right. Can't be a, a bargaining chip. I think there's plenty of room, like Jamie talked about, on issues where there's, frankly, polling that says there's overlaps between Democrats and Republicans on making the uh, Affordable Care Act better, doing more work around infrastructure, things that people can get behind. It is the other spaces when the Republicans or Trump starts to point to Ocasio-Cortez and says, look at the Democratic Party. It's represented by her. She wants to get rid of ICE. She wants to do all that. The Democrats have to be steadfast and not throw their newly elected, galvanizing, exciting to their base people out and right. under the bus and instead say, here are the people, here are the values that we have, here are the things that we want. Make Donald Trump, make the Senate say, no, we're not going to work with you on making the roads better. No, we're not going to work with you on protecting uh, people's health care and expanding it. No, we're not going to work with you on, on creating better access to job training, something that's, that's supported throughout. And I think that's going to be the so what. If Democrats get, get shaky on that, if they start putting people, throwing people under the bus, then you're going to see a group of people that turned out in big numbers in this election not turn out again. And that's right. exactly how we got into the Donald Trump space in 2016. Kiefer Dunn spoke to Will Quam, curator of Brick of Chicago, a website dedicated to demystifying and celebrating the city's most seminal building material. Quam detailed how and why Chicago Common became uh, so common in our city, how brick is laid, and what shiners and soldiers are in the world of bricks. Buildings on Air, Lumpen's Architecture Review, airs the first Saturday of each month at 2 p.m. Will, how's it going? It's going great. Glad to be here. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, you know, I feel like I've just been on this like vision quest for like <laughs> the last year sure. on like having to do with like all things masonry. I just got um, I just got uh, 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 admitted, I guess, to to a thing called Masonry Camp. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned I don't this know one. Masonry Camp. Masonry Camp. It's a thing put on by the International Masonry Institute sure. where they get like twenty four recently licensed architects together with twenty four union bricklayers um, for like a week of fun. Which, like, for anyone who knows me, is like my 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 dream. <laughs> that sounds exactly like my dream too. I want to. I'm not a licensed architect, but I'd love to go just document. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty spectacular. Um, so I, I I've I've that, that's to say that I've been a, a sort of longtime follower of your work as as sort of brick of Chicago, yeah. uh, be, being a being a lover of uh, Chicago brick. Um, so you know, to those to those who aren't familiar, um, maybe you can tell tell us what brick of Chicago is, and uh, also for for our kind of podcast audience, which is far flung, um, uh, uh, just stay stay on board because I'm telling you, you just have to trust me that bricks in Chicago uh, will reveal things about yeah. bricks anywhere. <laughs> yeah. So brick of Chicago is a uh, what started as just an Instagram project. I you know, wanted to pay a little more attention to the world, so I just started taking pictures of brick walls uh, on my daily commute and, and places I was walking as I started noticing all these buildings, you know, homes and, and commercial buildings had very similar layouts, mm -hmm. but it was the brick that really set them apart. Um, and so I started taking pictures and texted a bunch of friends and asked if they would follow an account. And then I... Uh, started posting them online and and then researching brick and the history of brick in Chicago and it was like learning a whole new language. Yeah. It's like learning a whole new language that had been hidden in front of me in plain sight. There's so much technical detail and terminology and things about brick that I had never known. Yeah, and it's it's amazing cuz like no two I think it's a very poetic way to put it cuz you know it, there, there's no two buildings that are kind of like, you know, saying the same words, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. And so so um you know, I and but how was it that you kind of landed landed on brick? Was that or was it just kind of by by chance? Or it was a little bit by chance, a little bit by prior knowledge. I yeah. uh, 
I read a, a book that talked a, a little bit about brick in, in one brief period about how older bricks are smaller and more variant mm. and newer bricks, you know, which I now know are larger extruded block yeah. are much larger, much more uniform in size, shape and color and everything and how, you know, older buildings tend to have a little more interest because of that. Yeah. Uh, and then that led me to paying a little closer attention to, to that thing. And then, you know, once I started researching that little bit into bricks, I just saw how deep that well went. And I decided, I guess, well, I'll chase, I'll chase this one. <laughs> yeah, right. You know? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. And, and it is, uh, there, there is kind of nothing like, you know, walking around Chicago and, yeah. and kind of being, being able to take notice of something like that. It, I feel like, uh, I feel like it's, it's, it's very, it's very sort of soothing. <laughs> it is. You know, I mean, it really, it's very meditative and it, it, you know, I'm someone who, you know, I've always got to have a podcast on. I've always like checking my phone and stuff. And so to be able to just kind of turn everything off yeah. and walk around and just throw my mind into focusing on buildings and noticing the world around me yeah. has been so wonderful. Yeah, and to 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 wax even more poetic about brick, uh, you know, because I, I think that one of the things that's a, that that I like about it so much is like. You just like even even in this, I'm, I'm gazing out the yeah. window. Yeah, we've, we've got some great bricks. <laughs> the tiny studio window, right? And, uh, some great brick outside some, the window. Some some fantastic brick uh, uh, from from the church uh, nearby. Um, yeah. and and there's like you know typical sort of Chicago two flat near near there as well. Yeah, we've got uh, we've got right across the street from us uh, the back of what looks like a pretty much a. a three stories tall, almost like worker's cottage that just got blown up. Yeah. And it's got Chicago commons along the side and the back. And, uh, you know, if you've been to Chicago, you've seen these common bricks. They're on the sides and back of every building of a certain age in Chicago, apartment buildings, commercial buildings, even some skyscrapers. Yeah. And it's that yellow to pink to deep red brick. And it just ages so beautifully. Um, and, you know, the, what we can see, we've got a window filled in and that pink brick, but the rest of the building is a little more of uh, that yellow buff color uh, yeah. with some, you know, patina of, of black from, you know, and that's industry right there staining staining <laughs> yeah. color especially uh here in bridgeport by the yes way, you know <laughs> exactly uh, from from back in the day but yes yeah, so the chicago common brick uh, i i know you've sort of uh, uh you sort of pointed to some articles about yeah. chicago common on on your website so like tell tell us about that because I, I think you know uh, in its kind of like imperfection it's very sort of soothing yeah. the chicago yeah. common brick and you know the perfect grid uh, versus the kind of imperfection of the actual bricks sure. and, and the patina and the the, the kind of uh, pointing over the years, um, it, it, it has something magical about it. What 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 is it? Because it, you can kind of yeah. explain it, right? <laughs> well, Chicago Common Brick is is so wonderful because it is so much of Chicago and Chicago's history. After the fire of eighteen seventy one, you couldn't build large buildings and housing out of wood because it was these wood balloon houses that yeah. balloon frame houses that burned everything down. So they went to the river and they went to the lake and they started dredging that clay and making that clay mm. into bricks. Mm -hmm. And that brick was the is the Chicago common brick. Um, and it was cheap and they could make a ton of it. And yeah. they did make a ton of it. And that's what they used to build and rebuild the city. Yeah. Um, and that's why it's everywhere. And it was that way until about the 1980s when Cinderblock took over. Right. And that's when the last um, brickyard making um, Chicago common brick uh, closed down. Um, but yeah, and it, you know, like the city, it's, it's got so much character to it and it is, it's everywhere and it's, it's all across this city. Yeah. I read, um, I, uh, uh no folks. That is the sound of producer Jamie pumping <laughs> his fists as Arsenal draws level with Liverpool. Danny Welbeck. And this is a sad host now. Uh, <laughs> and, a it, and a happy producer. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm just glad Derek Rose got 50 points from Tim Rolls the other day. Uh, maybe soccer will be my next thing. Yeah. Uh, so I had a really good question. Like, okay, so Chicago, I, this is an interest. This this is so distracting. The game has nine <laughs> minutes left. Oh my God. This is very embarrassing. Uh, it's, uh, it's super embarrassing. <laughs> you know, it, it is one of the one of the, the joys of live radio that we can kind of pull back the veil a little bit. Yeah, on, exactly. on <laughs> to show that we're having this deep discussion is actually really fascinating about Chicago brick. I happen to be really fascinated with this <laughs> while also watching a Frenchman tear the heart out of Liverpool. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Um, anyway, back to the regularly scheduled programming. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, I, I was, um, 
I heard this apocryphal story about the kind of Chicago fire. Sure. Uh, uh, so, you know, one one of the reasons why, you know, Brick is favorable, as you mentioned, is because of uh, the, the kind of legacy of the fire yeah. and the building codes and everything here. And, you know, concrete wasn't really uh, economical building material until, sure. like, fairly recently. We kind of forget. Um and so th- they 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 did the brick, um, but they had a huge debate actually immediately following the fire about whether brick or wood was more flammable. Huh. Um, and again, this is a pretty apocryphal story, that. but I've heard it many times. And it's I, apparently it's because uh, during during the fire, a lot of the brick buildings that were in the loop got so hot that the bricks were like Exploded. exploding, mm. and um, this made people feel like, oh no, like actually, like it's a, a kind of, kind of like 19th century galaxy sure, brain sure. actually the bricks are more dangerous <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, which of course uh, I, I guess was rectified when someone went to like a city hall meeting and was like with a block of wood and like uh, a brick and yeah. was like I have a matchbook like let's try to light let's, one of these things on fire let's, let's make a real demonstration of this yeah. I hadn't heard that but <laughs> you know they were so afraid of fire I believe that they they would chase every option yeah but yeah it's like like most things in the world it's you know these kind of building materials they, they kind of come to us with uh, 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 these kind of immense social histories that you can kind of read through them. And and um, I know that's something that you're also kind yeah. of in- interested in. We talked a little bit about it on the phone. Uh, you know, Buildings on Air is a show. We, 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 we uh, try to connect um, sort of lefty stuff with, with architecture yeah. when, it, when it's practical. Um, but, you know, the, the, the Chicago common brick has a kind of uh, relation to all of this. It does, yeah. There's It's because it is now... Um, it's now become so much more valuable because it, it, no one's making it anymore. Right. Um, and, you know, brick has also become, again, a, a very valuable material and a valuable facade material. Uh, and people want it, you know, exposed brick walls in their homes and they want people right. building massive homes in the suburbs. They want the Chicago Commons because they are so varied and beautiful and have such a, a, a weathered patina mm-hmm. that you don't get with, you know, a, a other cheap, you know, a cheap extruded product. Everything's going to look the same and right. it's going to be right. boring. But a, a wall of Chicago Commons is so valuable. So what they're doing is when they tear down a building, a lot of times uh, they will meticulously tear it down because it is more valuable as its individual bricks mm. than it is as a piece of land in a structure. And a lot of times... It's um, a wild yeah. statement. Right? right? Like, exactly. <laughs> just like, a, what, like, what a fact to just like... Wow. Well, and from <laughs> each of those individual bricks, they can actually make two bricks uh, because the, what you have now is what is called thin brick, yeah. where they take that Chicago common and they uh, put it through, uh, you know, a masonry bandsaw. Yeah. And they slice each of the long faces, which are called stretchers, off of it. And then you got two basically stickers. And yeah. then they stick those to the wall. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the buildings that are getting torn down for that are, are buildings in, in underserved communities, places like Englewood, sure. um, you know, where there's a lot of wonderful stuff happening in Englewood, but they're tearing down a lot of buildings for those brick as, as opposed to letting local businesses take them over. Yeah. Can producer Jamie ask a dumb question? Sure. Why, why, if Chicago common brick is so valuable, why aren't people making it anymore? One would think that there's a business opportunity there. That's a great question that I actually don't know the answer to. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I can talk about it a little bit because, you know, I, I think it really does have to do with the kind of the, the economy of scale mm-hmm. uh, and, and also uh, of, of how you make hand make bricks mm-hmm. you know uh, and it's i think it's probably a numbers game of it's still cheaper yeah. to go uh, especially when you're talking about uh, you know like ext- like basically what's what's a what's a business of, of extraction from like you know a grossly underserved community uh, and, and and neighborhood um, I think it's I think it's just a numbers game plus it is really hard to just uh, you know you can chemically uh, you can chemically attain a patina, um, mm-hmm. but it's really difficult um, to kind of get that that amount of variation yeah. in in the kind of context of mass production. It would it would be much more expensive. Yeah. You'd be looking at some of the, what I find some of the more beautiful bricks are what are called um, waterstruck brick, yeah. and that's brick where they're packing it, hand packing it into a mold that's been lined with sort of a calcium um, liquid. And so when they take it out of those molds, each one has its own individual character. Right. But those are much more expensive. 
because they're being hand packed and hand prepared and with sure. the solution. You know, when your Chicago Commons were the cheap option, so that's why they're on the sides and back of buildings. But when you look at a, a new condo or Marianas or stuff being built, yeah. they're using huge extruded blocks because they can, you know, produce fifty thousand or I'm sorry, fifty million of those in a year. Um, I visited a brickyard um, where they're producing fifty million of those in a year with thirty-two people. Yeah. <laughs> um, but these Chicago commons were hand-packed. They were put into wooden molds, um, and they've already got that character. And it would be really difficult for them to, I think, make that. Yeah. Something with that amount of character on a cheap scale mm-hmm. for, you know, a bunch of homes where just they want one wall that's – or they want a facade. Yeah. So you don't need this. Yeah, I think it probably is a big question of volume. Yeah, and, and you know, one of, one of the other things that I, I find kind of endlessly fascinating too is the um, – is, and I, we've talked about this in mailbag segments on the show too, but and this is related to my kind of vision quest <laughs> about mm-hmm. masonry. Is you know like with nothing, there's nothing like a brick wall that to yeah. like point to it and like be like they don't make them like they used to. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's right? true. You really you know I, I, it's so you can date buildings, especially buildings from the '90s and yeah. early aughts, based on the quality of their brick. Yeah, uh, and and just the sameness of the brick. Yeah. And and part of it is is I think because um, because of the the kind of cavity wall construction, mm-hmm. and that's what we've been kind of thinking about in our office a lot is is this you know for the for code reasons you have to have a kind of yeah. a backer wall a cavity wall and and you um, I and, and and this is kind of like an aesthetic problem that's persisted for a really long time yeah. now. I actually found you'll be interested <laughs> in this. I found from like the 1950s um, that the the Royal in, uh, Institute of British Architects, they produced this manual, um, the architecture use, architectural use of building materials. Uh-huh. And um, they had this thing that was like st- stretcher bond, right? So this is, mm-hmm. uh, well, maybe you could tell us tell us what stretcher well, bond so, is. Well, <laughs> uh, so the, the first thing you'll learn about um, all the, what I talked about this, all the secret language of bricks is you call a brick something different based on how it's laid. Yeah. So if you think of a long brick, that's called a stretcher, the long face. When you turn it, so it's going backwards. That's called a header. You turn that up. It's a row lock. You n- hold it up nice and tall and skinny. That's called a soldier. Tall with the flat, broad, flat face forward. That's a sailor. And then sideways with the broad, fat face forward is called a uh, shiner. So each one has a different name. Yeah. Uh, and that's because when you talked about bonds, a bond is the way you lay the brick to give the wall depth and give historically give it strength. Yeah. So you want to all be alternating stretchers and headers. So the headers are going back into the wall. But with a cavity wall, right. all you need are stretchers. Right. All you need are long bricks. So so this is a way to decode whether there's actually an airspace behind your wall. This yeah. is like one of like uh, the this one of the, the kind of the first things you learn when you start to get into the secret yeah. language. And and uh, uh, so you the Reba, uh, the British architects, they noted this problem in this study. This stretcher bond is commonly used for the outer four and a half inch leaf of a cavity wall. It has a stupidly monotonous appearance <laughs> and there must be many square miles of it all over the country. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which I love that they were like, it you know, is. just calling it in the 1960s. And of course this problem uh, has kind of only, only persisted. The, yeah. The, the only variation you'll see on it is with that huge masonry block, they'll now do raking stretcher bond. So yeah. instead, Instead of the stretchers being centered over each other or offset at the center, it's just a little more to one side mm. or the other, and it's and it still looks, you know. In the English talk, the English bond is yeah. is one row of all stretchers <laughs> alternating with one row of all headers, so they're yeah. very much. In they the English are in the the masonry lexicon, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so and so. Uh, yeah, so like I, this is what, and this is one of the reasons why I appreciate kind of Brick of Chicago yeah. so much is because I think that it, um, it sort of highlights the kind of beauty of really like of like craft yeah. and like you know I think in in both the kind of process of kind of you know walking and looking at these things, mm-hmm. but also it's kind of embodied in the in the buildings itself. It's it's kind of an homage to to sort of slowness. Yeah, and and the buildings I'm I'm focusing on in Brick of Chicago, where I'm taking photos of, of brick walls or or now um, more full structures as well. Yeah. But they they're apartment buildings. Yeah, they're storefronts. They're small houses. I've I've rarely featured. Um, large 
uh, you know, buildings designed by famous architects are buildings noted for their splendor. Sure. You know, and I went to, um, I have a brother in Pittsburgh, and so we went to visit and visited Falling Water. Yeah. And so I, I, but I looked particularly at the stone. Yeah. Because the way Frank Lloyd Wright, he's all about the horizontal line. He selected stones where long, flat stones alternating with larger, mm. fatter ones. Yeah. Um, and so when you really look at the brick, you can celebrate all the varied, you know, mundane buildings. Yeah. That that surround us in the city and and in the world. Yeah. <laughs> This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump tries to close the case for the Republicans by stoking fear. Networks and Facebook refuse a Trump ad called racist. Violent far-right figures have invoked Trump's words in domestic terror incidents. Democrats capture the House while Republicans hold on to the Senate as predicted. But a blue wave hits state houses in what could have a longer-term effect. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 651, November 1st. Trump now seeks to deploy 10,000 to 15,000 military personnel to the border with Mexico in response to a caravan of Central American migrants. That would be roughly equivalent to the size of U.S.'s presence in Afghanistan and three times the size of our presence in Iraq. The cost for troops at the border could reach $220 million. Trump also said he would declare a national emergency. When it was pointed out he couldn't actually do that in response to the caravan, Trump said, quote, national emergency covers a lot of territory. They can invade our country. You look at that, it almost looks like an invasion. It almost does look like an invasion. Trump also said, quote, I wouldn't be surprised if George Soros was funding the caravan. Far-right figures and Fox have been pushing the idea that Soros, who is a prominent liberal Jewish donor, has been funding the caravan. The linking of Soros to the caravan has widely been considered an example of anti-Semitism. Trump advisor Roger Stone was in communication with Steve Bannon about WikiLeaks disclosures. After Julian Assange claimed to possess the hacked emails from Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman, Bannon emailed Stone. Stone has previously denied being in contact with Bannon about WikiLeaks despite selling himself to Trump's campaign as a conduit to Julian Assange. Prosecutors say pipe bomb suspect Cesar Sayak conducted a domestic terror attack. Sayak researched the addresses of his targets online and had photos of them on his cell phone. He began planning the attack while living in his van. That distinction is important as the FBI and the Justice Department have been reluctant to call far-right attacks domestic terrorism. Meanwhile, Trump doesn't plan to renew the anti-domestic terror program. The Department of Homeland Security told grant recipients the funding was a one-time opportunity. Republicans have criticized the Justice Department for the domestic terror approach ever since a 2009 report released by then-Justice Department head Janet Reno that was a prescient report on far-right groups. Her report, however, was immediately politicized as an attack on conservatives. Her report's accuracy has been borne out. Over 70% of all attacks in American soil are, in fact, the work of far-right extremists. A federal judge ordered Ohio to allow the voters it purged from voting rolls to vote in the midterm elections. Ohio has been attempting to cull voter rolls in what critics contend is an effort to suppress the vote. And Trump attacked House Speaker Paul Ryan after he said Trump obviously can't end birthright citizenship. Quote, Paul Ryan should be focused on holding the majority rather than giving his opinions on birthright citizenship, something he knows nothing about. Day 652, November 2nd. A federal judge refused to dismiss a lawsuit alleging that Trump is violating the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution. The states of Maryland and Washington have sued Trump, wanting to know how much money Trump's hotel in Washington is receiving from foreign governments and how profits flow into his trust. Trump also has been accused of blocking the relocation of the current FBI headquarters in order to prevent that property from being redeveloped and thus competing with his Trump hotel. The U.S. economy stayed hot, adding 250,000 jobs in October. Wages grew by 3.1% in the largest annual jump in nine and a half years. The unemployment rate is 3.7%. That is the lowest since 1969. The Trump administration reimposed all U.S. sanctions on Iran that have been lifted as part of the 2015 nuclear deal. Trump made that announcement by tweeting a picture of himself emblazoned with the words, sanctions are coming, in the font from the TV show Game of Thrones. HBO responded with a tweet that said, quote, how do you say trademark misuse in Dothraki? They also made a formal complaint. Trump again blamed journalists for creating violence at a campaign rally. He made those comments on a day when another pipe bomb was found mailed to prominent Democratic donor Tom Steyer. He has led a fund seeking to impeach Trump. Michael Cohen told Vanity Fair that Trump thinks black people are too stupid to vote for him. Cohen said the remarks were made when Trump and him were in Chicago. Cohen added that Trump thinks all countries run by blacks are garbage. He made also a number of other racist remarks about the city of Chicago. 
Day 653, November 3rd. 200 unregulated armed militia members are currently operating along the southwest border, according to a planning document given to Army commanders heading to the U.S.-Mexico border. Those groups are operating under the guise of citizen patrols, supporting border officials. They are considered armed and dangerous. Trump also dismissed his own administration's national climate assessment, telling Axios that not only did he not read the report, he believes climate change will probably change back. Day 654, November 4th. An ABC survey of current criminal cases have found that Trump's name has been directly invoked in 17 cases of criminal violent acts. All but one of the cases have direct evidence of the perpetrator echoing presidential rhetoric. Trump has attempted to blame the media for a surge in hate crimes in the United States. Voting machine errors are affecting early balloting in Georgia and Texas. Civil rights groups and voters in both states have filed complaints saying the voting machines deleted their votes for Democratic candidates or simply switched them to votes for Republicans. Day 655, November 5th. Georgia's Secretary of State groundlessly accused Democrats of trying to hack the state's voter registration system. That Secretary of State is Brian Temp. He is also the Republican candidate for governor. He is in a tight race with Stacey Abrams, who is attempting to become the first African-American female governor in the United States. The FBI has said there are no credible attempts to hack systems in the midterms. Kemp's stunt was immediately condemned as an abuse of power. United States businesses paid some $4.4 billion in tariffs in September, up more than 50% from a year ago. That is because Trump has put $1.4 billion in tariffs and Chinese imports on foreign steel and aluminium. Also, soybean farmers are watching their crops rot. China is the largest consumer of soybeans. They have stopped ordering soybeans from America in response to Trump's tariff. A racist ad falsely accusing Democrats of allowing a man who murdered two police officers into the country was rejected by multiple networks and Facebook. That ad shows Luis Bracamonte, the deported Mexican who killed two California sheriff's deputies, in court with text overlays that read, He killed our people, Democrats let him stay in our country, and Democrats let him into our country. It is followed by footage of people who appear to be part of a caravan pushing down gates. The ad, which carries the tagline of the committee to re-elect Trump, was rejected by CNN, NBC, Fox, and Facebook because it made false and baseless claims and was racist on its face. In fact, Bracamontes entered the country while George Bush was president and was released by Sheriff Joe Arapaio for reasons unknown. Arapaio was pardoned last year by Trump. When asked by reporters about the ad, Trump replied, quote, I don't know about it. We have a lot of ads. A lot of things are offensive. Your questions are offensive sometimes, right? Oddly enough, at the exact same time he was taking those questions, his campaign manager, Brad Perscali, was tweeting, quote, So NBC News, CNN, Facebook have chosen to stand with those illegally in our country. Instead of standing with legal immigrants and those that follow our laws, the fake news media and the Palo Alto Mafia are trying to control what you see and how you think. Stop the caravan. Day 656, November 6, Election Day. A record 40 million Americans voted early in the United States. In Texas alone, early voter turnout surpassed the entire turnout in the 2014 midterm election. Trump actually spent election night out of the public eye, only appearing at 7.05 p.m. to blame House Speaker Paul Ryan for losing the U.S. House of Representatives. He would later tweet, quote, thanks for a tremendous evening. Day 657, November 7th. In an election that was seen by both parties as a referendum on Trump, Democrats delivered a forceful rebuke, seizing control of the U.S. House that also saw pickups of several governorships. Turnout was exceptional in Chicago, a record 50% of voters in Cook County cast ballots. It was not, however, a blue wave as the Senate eluded the Democrats. Republicans flipped seats in three states, Tennessee, Indiana, and North Dakota, to further cement their control of that chamber. In fact, the election seemed to deepen the partisan divide in the nation, leaving it almost evenly split at every level. Urban voters went strongly for Democrats, while rural voters overwhelmingly went Republican. Illinois was one of the states that flipped, where J.B. Pritzker routed Bruce Rauner, and Sean Caston and Lauren Underwood flipped House seats. Kansas also flipped, with Trump acolyte Chris Kobach losing badly to Laura Scott. Tony Evers ousted Scott Walker in Wisconsin. Overall, Democrats seized eight state house seats, giving them 25 of the 50 slots nationwide. With redistricting on the horizon ahead of the 2020 election, that could tip the balance away from Republicans. Other key races saw Trump acolytes ejected as well. In California, Mike Levin appears to have won the seat vacated by Daryl Issa. And in a once unthinkable win in coastal Orange County, Trump water carrier Dana Rohrabacher has lost to Harley Ruda. Pete Sessions lost to Colin Allred in Texas in another shock. 
But Democrats also took hits where they fielded left-of-center candidates under pressure from their socialist wing they lost. In Florida, Ron DeSantis beat rising star Andrew Gillum. Larry Hogan easily beat Ben Jealous in Maryland. Stacey Abrams was left clinging to hopes of a runoff in Georgia. Beto O'Rourke, who raised $70 million, was beat by Ted Cruz in Texas. However, in Texas, Democrats had their best showing in 20 years. Trump responded by proclaiming victory and then threatening the Democrats. Trump tweeted, quote, received so many congratulations from so many on our big victory last night, including from foreign nations, friends, that were waiting me out and hoping on trade deals. Now we can all get back to work. He then followed up by tweeting, if the Democrats think they're going to waste taxpayer money investigating us at the House level, we will likewise be forced to consider investigating them for all the leaks of classified information at the Senate level. Two can play at that game. Bizarrely, Trump then endorsed Nancy Pelosi for House Speaker and volunteered Republican votes if she can't get enough votes of her own from her own caucus. Quote, in all fairness, Nancy Pelosi deserves to be chosen Speaker of the House by the Democrats. If they give her a hard time, perhaps we will add some Republican votes. She has earned this great honor. That was even more head-spinning than usual, considering that just 12 hours prior, Sarah Huckabee Sanders had said Trump would not reach out to Pelosi, adding, why would he? 58% of Americans think Trump's rhetoric incites violence. A record 55% disapprove of his performance. Trump's approval rating is now 39%. Healthcare and Donald Trump ranked number one and number two on voters' minds, according to exit polls. These are the Trump Diaries. I-94 spoke to Ingrid Rojas Contreras about her family's remarkable story. The novelist discussed life in the time of Pablo Escobar, how kidnappings were routine and sometimes even comical, and why newspapers printed safe routes for the holidays. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. So joining us from the Bay Area, she is the author of the new novel out from Doubleday, Fruit of the Drunken Tree. It is out now from Doubleday, as I mentioned, Ingrid Rojas Contreras. Ingrid, are you with us? Yes. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Is How is it out there today in the Bay Area? It is cloudy. Yeah. We've had a lot of cloudy days, yeah. It's cloudy here as well. We have more rain than London, I'm told. Um, we are, we're really pleased to have you on the show today. This is a great novel uh, that is about, uh, I don't want to give too much away, but it is set uh, in Colombia uh, during the reign of Pablo Escobar, the notorious drug lord. It deals with, uh, I think it's fair to say, an abduction or an attempted abduction, and it is loosely based, uh, I believe, on events in your own life. Is that correct, Ingrid? Yeah, yeah. I uh, grew up in Bogota, Colombia. And when I was young, the true, the true event that the novel is based on, my, you know, we have a lot of displaced people in Colombia, so people who have been, you know, lost their homes to either guerrillas or paramilitary members, and they, they come as displaced families to the city. When I was growing up, my mom would take in young girls from families who had been displaced, and they would often be... 13 years old or 14 years old and they would they would live with us and they would be our, our caretakers and they would do maid work. One of the girls that my mother took in uh, happened to be living in guerrilla occupied territory and so she was threatened into acting against our family or else her, her family might be killed or they told her we might hurt you if you don't do this. So Later, when I started to write the everything that happened out of that, and the idea that you could be, you know, 14 years old and trying to to be a regular 14 year old girl, but have the weight of that decision put upon you, uh, was something that I I almost couldn't get away from. The story haunted me for many years, and I finally decided to write it as a novel. Hi, Ingrid. I- before we get into the discussion of uh, the questions and further discussion on the novel, um, in the first chapter, I'm sorry, in the second chapter, um, you're just—it's uh, called the Girl Patrona—and you talk about um, what I, I, I'm, my Spanish is horrible, but uh, uh, invasions—is that how you pronounce it? Oh, yeah. the invasiones. Yeah. Invasiones. Is that how, okay? Um, and you said that your mom lived there in one, and it was government land taken over by this place. I've never heard of this, and I, I tried to find more information on it about, about it online, and there doesn't seem to be. So is it like squatters' rights? Can you explain that to us? Yeah, it's, um, so 
It's it's just a it's a settlement, um, and the I heard the term invasión, which is invasion, and as you can imagine, it's something that the middle class might say, um, okay. but not how they would how they would call their home. They wouldn't say like we live in an invasion. Um, and in the book, I was very interested in these two classes, so like a middle class and how does the middle class see displaced people and how is that embedded in the language that they use to refer to it and how do the displaced people, the displaced people see the middle class. Um, so it's, um, yeah, we, we have so many displaced people in Colombia um, that just, they come to the city and there's, I, at the time, I think there was a there was a government law that if you found land and you lived on it for more than I think it was five years, but I could be wrong, it became your land, um, and that was to to try to remedy the situation of so many people losing their homes to violence and and trying to give them a way forward. So it's a derogatory term. Yes. Okay, yes. so it's like saying ghetto in the States, I, I assume. Like, Reminds exactly. me of like favelas in Brazil, I would think, too, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, there's an, one other thing I wanted to mention, too, uh, about the second chapter, The Girl Patrona. Um, you have a line that says, ours was a kingdom with women. Uh, let me re- read that again. Ours was a kingdom of women with Mama at the head, perpetually trying to find a fourth like us or a fourth like her, a younger version of Mama, poor and eager to climb out of poverty, on whom Mama would right the wrong she herself had endured. Um, I I love the women in your story. You know, I find this to be a very... The, the women characters are so strong. Um, partic- and uh, Mike and I were talking about this, but the character, uh, the main character, Chula... I've never read a child's voice that was that powerful and accurate, and I compare it to Scout and To Kill a Mockingbird. I found it to be so... I, um, I'm a librarian. Um, I talk about it a lot on the show, but I used to be a children's librarian. I've read hundreds, if not thousands, of children's and YA, YA books, and I'm not saying this is not a children or YA novel. However, the voice is so hard to write of a child, especially when you're an adult. And I was just, I just want to commend you on that because her voice was so realistic and so childlike, but also growing up in, in a very uh, difficult and strange time. Um, I just wanted to commend you on that. And I think that was a, a her, Chula's voice was absolutely amazing. Yeah. Thank it, you so it, much. It's perfect for, for U.S. readers who aren't familiar with the situation in Colombia in the 80s because she's, Chula's being introduced to, to this right complex system the same way we are so she's asking the same questions that we probably would right. what's the difference between a paramilitary group and FARC what, what is FARC right and this is uh, you know that brings up a point that I wanted to make before we get into our first reading which introduces the uh, the character of Patrona um, you don't need to know a lot of modern Colombian history and Colombian history unfortunately uh, is rather bloody uh, there was a, a huge paramilitary campaign there was a right wing government there were uh, militants uh, and it is only recently that Colombia has had a peace agreement and has demilitarized. And, of course, uh, Ingrid, correct me if I'm wrong, but your family came over uh, to the United States as refugees from Bogota during that period. Am I correct? We came, so I came alone to the U.S. in 2002, and I, and I came for college. We did leave Colombia when, when I was 14, and we went to Venezuela and you know the thing is that we thought about, you know, we, we had several kidnapping attempts happen in our family. And we thought about applying for refugee status. And what we felt was that there were, there were so many uh, stories that were worse than ours that we didn't feel like we could even get it, that we couldn't even qualify. So what happened for us was that... Um, and my mother heard that there was uh, a guy who was visiting from overseas, and he was someone who who was able to place people um, in different companies in different countries. And so my mother went to this party, 
and she didn't know any English, but she learned the two words in English, and she just walked up to this man, and she grabbed his hand, um, and he, he just, she just told him, my daughters, my daughters. And so somehow, he, this man who could only speak English understood from that interaction that our family was in some kind of danger. And so in a, in a few weeks, he, he appointed my dad to a job in Venezuela, and that's how we were able to leave the country. And your father was kidnapped in the story. It was actually, it's in the afterword of the novel. Um, it's actually kind of a humorous story. I, I mean, it's as humorous as it could be in the situation. Do you want to tell us the story about your father's kidnapping? Yeah, so he was... He was working and he was going to come to see us in, in Bogota and he was maybe five hours away from us. So he was about to get into his car when a bunch of guerrilla members surrounded him and they, they took him. So they marched him into a jungle and they took him to, the, to a guerrilla camp. They bound his hands behind his back and they put him in this dark shed and they sat him in this chair, and he described it as the longest night of his life. He couldn't, he couldn't sleep, um, and he was just you know, sitting upright on a chair the whole night. And the thing is that if you're kidnapped in Colombia, it could be an ordeal that lasts between four months to maybe 16 years. So you don't really know when you're going to emerge from this. You don't know if it's going to be quick, and there's people that just actually never come back and they disappear. So you really have no idea what's going to happen to you. So I can't imagine the fear and anxiety that he must have felt that night. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt and say yeah. I, I don't mean humorous. Uh, the story, I guess the, the best way to phrase it is crazy. The story's crazy, so I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> it, it wasn't funny. Although I, I, I'm sure in hindsight... You know, I don't know if your dad has a crazy sense of humor or not, but it, it, as far as a lot of the stuff that I've read about, the ending was pretty, pretty uh, satisfactory for your family. I'm sorry. Go ahead and finish. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. So it is. It does get. You know, it's it's it, it's crazy what happens. But so the so the next day, the guerrilla uh, members come and get him, and they're gonna take him to meet the boss of the guerrilla camp. They walk into the shack, they open the doors for him, they kind of push him in, and in the shack is his childhood friend, who's now the the boss of the guerrilla camp. So, of course, they haven't seen each other for years, so his childhood friend is like, Gilberto, how have you been? You know, are you married? Like, do you have children? Like, what's going on? You look so well, you know? and, and so, so the whole time, my, my dad still has his hands bound. Um, but they, they catch up in this, the strangest, you know, reunion ever. And, but then he's, he's let go because they know each other. So my dad was let go, and he just got into his car, and he just drove as fast as he could um, to, to our house. Um, and yeah, it, it was such a strange, what a strange coincidence to happen. The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, and Hannah Larson. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen radio sting by Dan Jugal. Additional music from International Anthem Archive. Voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Yeah.